Take a breath. And then smile. You're a grim-looking bunch this morning. Keep smiling. You too, Craig. Come on, man. Best we got. All right. I'll take it. We took a little quick look in to Matthew 1 last week. Ooh, what a voice. And we're going to come back there. So if you have a Bible with you or you have your, your device, open to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in there. And um, I'll we'll kind of give you some direction about other places we're going to go. Uh, some text will be on the screen. But uh, I think it's always good to follow along and uh, see if I've left anything out, see what's there, see what's going on. We talked about the grandmas last week. We talked about Jesus' grandmas, the ones who are listed. Now, Jesus had lots of grandmas, but there's only a handful, only four of them listed among the lineage that Matthew decides to, to speak of as he introduces Jesus to the world. So think of Matthew's book as an attempt by the, by the apostle to introduce Jesus, the Jesus he understood, the Jesus he had met, the Jesus he knew, to introduce him to the rest of the world, and he starts the book with this, this, this list of names. It's a weird thing for us. We wouldn't do it, right? You wouldn't start introducing your friend by saying, Hi, uh, this is my friend. Uh, his father's name is such and such, and his grandfather's name is such and such, and his great-grandfather. We wouldn't do that, right? But that's exactly what Matthew does. He does it specifically for a reason, because he's not introducing just some guy. He's introducing Jesus... As the Messiah, as the son of David, as the son of Abraham. And so in order to make all those connections, he starts to delineate who Jesus is with Abraham. And he starts down the list. And he brings out the grandmas. He starts talking about Jesus' grandmas. And as he starts talking about Jesus' grandmas, we learned a little bit about them. As he's teaching in this process... The grandmas that he brings up sort of demonstrate the breadth of his reach. That right within the bloodline of Jesus, the physical DNA of Jesus, right within who he is, is this broad embrace. Broad for a Jewish person anyway. He keeps bringing up the people whose stories in the family no one wanted to have told. Right out in front of everybody, he says, hey, by the way, one of his grandmas is Tamar. Nobody wants to talk about that story, but you know the story, right? And, he, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience, so they did know the story. So you all know the story. Yeah, Grandma Tamar. And, and he goes on, and, he, and you, know, that, you know, when we came into, into the promised land, there was that woman who had the house. They wouldn't let her, even let her build in the, in the city. They made her hang it on the out, outside of the city. Uh, you know, one of his grandmas, she, she, she hung that red flag outside. Remember her? Yeah, that was one of his grandmas. And he just, he's going through, and I told you, that probably the most radical one is Ruth, because Ruth is a Moabitess, and, and Moses had said, they will never be a part of us. And yet here she is, bigger than life, one of Jesus' grandmas. And, and the, the, the biblical picture is the reach of Jesus. That his arms reach out, and right within the bloodline of Jesus. You know one of the things I love about America? We're all mutts. 
It's true. We don't have purebreds here. And if we get one, we quickly interbreed to make them much like the rest of us. We just don't. We, we, we're all kind of mixed bloodlines. It's awesome. We have, we have bred the blue blood out of most of America. That's why we got a tan going on. The people who came here didn't tan well. It was their problem. I told Brenda one time, and I've repeated it often, I married you so my kids would tan. (laughs) There were a lot of other reasons, but my kids tan. Those of us who know the scourge of not tanning know the importance of that little mix. You know what else I discovered is that the more you mix the bloodline, the better the children look. You stay too close to the other ones, the bad parts start coming out. In America, we're all kind of mixed up mutts. And that's one of the real benefits and blessings. The biblical depiction of Jesus' grandmas is the extension of his arms. Bathsheba. No one wants to talk about that wife of David. They don't even name her. Even Matthew doesn't name her. He just says the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We talked about the fact that we probably all have people in our backgrounds, in our bloodlines that we don't talk about. I come from a little town where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. A lot of Americans come from that sort of town. Lisbon, Ohio. Not Lisbon, Portugal, but Lisbon, Ohio. Much less cool. In Lisbon, Ohio, our family is a known commodity. I come from the Richards family from Lisbon, Ohio. And if you're in in the middle of town and you mention that you're a Richards, they get a whole view of you. It goes back to your grandparents. Some of it good, some of it not so good. Some of the bar fights, some of the bigger ones, some of the more famous ones got started by those Welch Richards family folk. Some of the prouder moments held in the hands of some of those Richards folk. Who's in there? And does Jesus' blood extend that far? So we talked about the grandmas, and I told you we probably should talk about some of the guys, just to be fair, but there are just too many of them. So I decided to pick one. But I wanted you to understand that the generations that are being highlighted here are here to describe that Jesus has this connection through David and the right to be the king of Israel. And I gave you three portions because it's Abraham to David, David to to the captivity in Babylon, and the captivity to Jesus that's being described. A three-link chain from Abraham to them. And it goes right through Jesus. 
It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 that I want to start you off with. It's the end of the description. He's gone through all the bloodlines, and he makes this weird sort of mathematical commentary. It's odd. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Fair enough. Why is that important? I'll get to it. And from David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. Now, unless you can include David in both the previous and in the, the next one, you don't have 14, you have 13. David is counted twice. He is the end of the, the line of the patriarchs and the beginning of the line of the monarchs as far as they're concerned. And then from the captivity in Babylon until Christ is 14 generations. Oh, by the way, by the way in that, that captivity, they, he doesn't count the last couple of kings because the first, the, they were put in by Egypt and taken off by Babylonians. He doesn't seem to think they are worthy to count. But if you look at the list, why 14? Why is 14 a big deal? I start looking at it and there are all kinds of weird commentaries about it. Oh, well, 14. Well, that's very important because 14 is important. Nowhere else is 14 important. 14, well, that's two sevens. Then that starts to make a little bit of sense. You double down on the sevens. Sevens is this, this creative power of God inserted into the world in seven days. And so it's become marked as this, this, this way that God goes about His business, this perfection of God in His creatorship. Interesting. Double down on the sevens. That might be working. In the first century in Judaism, there's something called gematria. Have you ever heard of it? They used to add up people's names. In fact, it went on into the Roman Greeks. Everybody was doing it. It was kind of a cultural fad. You would add up the name of your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, your, your whatever, and you would, you, you would actually see in, in, in carvings on like walls inside caves and stuff are carvings, and it says things like, I love the one whose name adds up to 81. It's like, oh man, you're such a romantic. Really? 81? Isn't that awesome? That's like 16 people, but great. Good for you. But this is a regular common thing. David's name in Hebrew adds up, guess what? To 14. And the, the idea, the, 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 the commentary of, the under, of understanding here is that the Jewish people would have already known David's name adds up to 14. And when Matthew saw this, he said, hey guys, guess what? It's David from Abraham to David. It's David from, David from David to Babylon. And it's still David from Babylon to Jesus because Jesus is the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He's being very careful in this thing. He's being very specific in what he's doing. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And guess what? It adds up to David. And all the generations from David to Babylon are 14. And guess what? That also adds up to David. And then all the generations from Babylon all the way down to Jesus adds up to David. Even though his name's not in the last list. The son of man, the son of David, the Messiah, the prince, the son of God. Jesus is what we've all been adding up to thus far. So I just wanted you to see that he's not, he's not being flippant. He's not just throwing something out there. He's pulling an argument together very carefully to introduce who you're dealing with as the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince. And as he does, 
14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Babylon, and 14 generations from Babylon to Jesus. I want you to get the last piece. From the worst moment of Israel's history to the Messiah. 14 generations. And guess what that adds up to? David. The son of David. The Messiah, the Prince. The King of Israel. He's the answer. You, have you ever had somebody ask you what, the, the, what is the answer? What is the number that answers all the questions of the universe? If you have Dave Dimmick, ask Dave Dimmick, it's 13. If you ask Dave Dimmick, it's 13. What do, what do most people say it is? Shout it out. 42. 42. Guess what 14, 14, and 14 are? But that's not what this is about. <laughs> but it is the same statement. He's saying the answer to all the questions and problems of the universe is 14, because 14 is adding up to Jesus. Follow? You should ask Dave Dimmick why 13 is the answer to all the questions of the universe, too. So I want to just go to one of the grandpas, and I want you to see him in the line. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Are you familiar at all with those kings? Do you remember the story of Hezekiah? I kind of like the story of Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah is this, this great king with a tremendous amount of power, lots of wealth, a lot going on. And yet one day he breaks down so bad that he gets the sup-sups. The sup-sups. You know what the sup-sups are. You've been crying so long you can't cry anymore. The tears aren't coming. All you got left is... Hezekiah gets so far out, so strung out in his tears and his heartbreak, that's all he's got left. Do you know the story? You see, what has happened is the northern kingdoms have become so bad that God has told them through the prophets that the Assyrians are coming and now they've come. And they've swept away the northern ten tribes. They're gone. They've taken, the ca- they've taken them captive back to Assyria and they've thrown some Assyrians into the land. So the enemies are now at the door and this great general, Sennacherib, sent by his father, have, has come through the land. He swept them all out. And now that he has taken over the northern tribes, he's at the door of Jerusalem. He's been going through little towns and sacking towns all over the, the countryside. And he's got this massive army, over 100,000 soldiers, and they're camped outside the door of Jerusalem. And he's a cocky guy. He's a real cocky guy. He starts to send envoys to talk to, to, to the king. And he says, look, you might as well surrender because I got you. There's no getting out of this, buddy. I don't care who you think your God is. It's not working for you. Sennacherib is so positive that, or, or so strong that Hezekiah's envoy asks him not to say this too loud. Can you imagine that? He's outside the gate of the city. And the, and the envoy says, don't talk too loud because the people here, you know, it'll scare them. And he says, oh no, we're going to talk loudly. You people don't have a chance. And he says it in Hebrew so that they'll understand. And the people start to freak out and, and, and in his chambers is the king. And he's... 
Isaiah comes and comforts him, and Isaiah tells him, don't worry, God's got this. When you have nothing left, you don't even have tears, you still have God. Isaiah comes and tells Hezekiah, God's got this. And during the night, after, after they pray, and after they, as a group, ask for God's help, God comes. 100,000 of these people die overnight. Sennacherib, with his tail between his legs, heads home. While he's praying in the temple of his God, a couple of his brothers come in and kill him. Within a month of his boasting that he will take Jerusalem, it doesn't matter who Hezekiah's God is, he's lying dead in the temple of a God who doesn't actually exist. Hezekiah continues his life from that point, boasting of God and boasting of God's blessings. Makes a couple of big mistakes, but during that time a son is born. A son he names after one of Joseph's sons. After one of the tribes of Israel. In fact, one of the most successful large tribes in Israel, the tribe of Manasseh. He names his son, gives him an exalted name. The son grows up 12 years under the shadow of this story of what God has done. The glory and wealth that it has brought his family, the prestige and leadership that it has brought his dad. He grows up under that leadership And his now aged dad passes away. And at 12 years old, Manasseh becomes king. Can we just say that there are some things you are too young to do? You know, I've often, I I don't know why, maybe it's the era I, well, it probably is the era I grew up in, but um, there was a little kid from Gary, Indiana when I was a kid who became the king of pop. And it ruined his life. Because there are some things you are just too young to do. And worldwide fame was one for him. And being a king of Israel was one for Manasseh. We have another another picture of this. There was a fight between the Medicis and the Pope back in the 1400s. And um, the Pope lost. And so the Medici... Uh, leader, a guy named Lorenzo the Magnificent, I'm sure he named himself, forced the Pope to name his 12-year-old son a cardinal. Now, now, Now look at the parallel, not with Manasseh, but with the king of pop. This kid becomes completely self-indulgent because there's nothing out of his reach. He has a mansion like nobody's business in Tuscany. He has a zoo. Some of you don't know the King of Pops' history. He had a mansion in California that is unbelievable. And you know what else he had? A zoo. The Medici child ends up eventually being the Pope. By the time he becomes Pope, he's 400 LBs because he has no stop. He just goes. 
He only has goes and he has no stops. Some things you are too young to do. Some things you need a little wisdom and a little time to be prepared for. And becoming king at 12 years old seems to have ruined Manasseh. He didn't learn from his father's experience, from his grandfather's experience. And when you find him in the text, it's not very flattering. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He did so many bad things that he was like the people God had gotten rid of to to, had displaced in order for Israel to come. He rebuilt the pagan shrines that his father, Hezekiah, had broken down. I don't know if he's rebelling against his dad into idolatry, but it kind of looks that way, doesn't it? He's rebelling against his dad's picture, his dad's glory, his dad's, his dad's ideals, his dad's story until he moves away into idolatry. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father, Hezekiah, had broken down. He constructed altars and images to Baal and set up Asherah poles. These are the two local pagan gods from the land of Canaan. And he also bowed down before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. What are, what are all the powers of the heavens? The sun, the moon, and the stars. He's worshipping everything in the sky and everything around him. What's interesting about this is, is people walk away from the authority of God. Children, young people, walk away from what their parents have experienced, what they've learned, what they've discovered in Christ. You may have done it. You may have been off on that fool's errand yourself. And we, we wander off into these other things, trying to find something to fill the hole that only has one, one real filler. And when we start reaching out there, we're like, we're like these guys are trying to grasp for straws. You look at what he's doing. He goes and he rebuilds the shrines his fathers had torn down. Up, up on the hilltops, they built these shrines under every tree. And, and, and they, they worshipped there. And they worshipped all kinds of things in all manner of ways. And they start grasping at straws for answers to questions that only God can answer. And since that's not working, he starts building to the local gods. Baal and Asherah, they're the gods of the land, so let's worship them. And they're controlling of war, and they're controlling of thunder and lightning and stars, or thunder and lightning and clouds and rain. And, and, and he worships them, and he grasps at some more straws, and they don't fill, they don't answer, they don't do anything. So rather than go back to the answer, he starts weaving them out of these straws. And he starts worshiping everything under the heavens. He just starts building altars to anything and everything. He built altars in the house of the Lord. So he's now gone beyond what other people have done. He's now building altars for these gods in the house of the Lord. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So out in the outer court, he's building altars to the stars and the moon and the sun. And he's anything and everything. Grasping at some more straws. Grasping at some more straws. Grasping at some more straws. Seeing if he can find something that will hold them. The whole idea of grasping at straws is they don't help. He keeps grasping. He keeps grasping and he finds nothing. Manasseh also sacrificed his own sons in fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. It's one of the valleys Next to Israel, in the the first century, in the time of Christ, it became the dump. 
And it, it literally just filled up with garbage. And the Bible talks about the fire never going out there. It became the place where anything and everything, dead animals, garbage from your house, dead people were just thrown on the pile. And the smoke and the fire that was constantly burning there would eventually get to whatever was on top. And it would get buried under a bunch of other stuff. And this, this just smoldering pile of garbage sat outside the city of Jerusalem for a hundred years. Man, what a smell. You know, sometimes the wind blows and changes and you get a little whiff of the, of the, of the dump. Imagine if that's right outside the wall of the city and it's not just a pile, it's a smoldering, burning pile of everything. No sorting. No recycling. Just ashes. Slowly becoming ashes. Before it became the garbage dump, and probably the reason it became the garbage dump, is it was the place where children were sacrificed. In that valley, in the archaeological digs in that valley, they have found, and I think I've shared this with you before, little statues about this tall. These little statues were statues that were to, the, to, to Baal, basically, because they were statues for uh, the sake of good luck and prosperity and having more children. How do you get abundance from this? And the statue was a bronze or iron statue with the arms out like this. And the stomach was large like a woman to give birth. And they would build a fire inside the stomach. And they would keep stoking the fire until the statue was glowing red hot. And when the statue was glowing red hot, they would lay the baby on the arms of the statue. How far down the road to hell do you have to be to do that? How, how desperate for an answer do you have to be to do that? You, you talk about grasping for your last straw to bring your infant child and do that. You see, this is why the people who lived in Canaan were run out of Canaan by God. Because these were, the, these were the regular practices of the people of Canaan. And now an Israelite king who had been in the land for his whole life who had seen the blessings of God in his own family, has come to this. As they're making this list, they're trying to impress on us, as the, as the chronicler is writing these, he's trying to impress on us how far down Manasseh has gotten. It, 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 and he even did this. And he even did that. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Don't know if he was trying to make him mad. He even set a carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God. It's funny that in my estimation... The previous sin is worse than this one, but in a Hebrew estimation, this is worse than the previous sin. This is worse than sacrificing your children. It's, uh, it's not, a, a, not, a, not an economy, I understand, but it was for them. So in the actual 
holy place, he set up an Asherah pole. Asherah is the goddess of war. And one of the stories of Asherah is of her slashing her way across the lands. And, you know, just she rides in on this horse and she just destroys everything until the blood flows. Manasseh led peoples of Judah and Jerusalem to do even more evil than the pagan nations that the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. How do you, how do you feel about this guy? I don't like this guy. I've re- I, I started reading, I think the first time I came across this story, I was a pretty new Christian. And I read through this business and I'm like, what, what kind of guy is this? How does this happen? His father was just rescued by God from a pagan king. Overnight, 100,000 pagan soldiers die, and those people end up going back home. And that very king who challenged God dies. And this guy follows. I kept asking myself, is this the mistake of his old age? He has a child and he's so indulgent with this child of his old age that he just kind of, he kind of spoils him to death and this is what he becomes? How do you get this way? How do you get this far? I can't understand it. I can't understand what he's done to his children. I can't understand what he's doing to innocence. I can't understand what he's doing to the people around him. Don't understand him. I have no context to place this in. It's, it's, it's heinous beyond what I can understand and what I can relate to. And that's the point of the way the Bible is illustrating the story. They're trying, the, the, the Chronicle is trying to show us how far down he's gotten. And yet when Matthew writes out the list of names of the followers or of the, of the grandfathers of Jesus, this guy's there. Everybody in Israel would have known this story. These are the stories that were taught to children from the time they were little. These are the history of our kings. These are the stories of the kings. These are what happened. And to have this name in your lineage, what a shame. What a shameful thing. Yet there he is. All the time, grasping at straws when the answer he was looking for was there. It was there in the temple he was defiling. It was there among the priests and the prophets who were trying to speak to him. It was there in the history of his father's experience. It was there in the presence of God and the people of God. Sometimes we grasp for things that will not answer the questions we're asking. Sometimes we spend our, our energies, sometimes the, the people around us just look at us and shake their head because they can't believe what we've done or what we've become. How sharp our tongue has become, how wasteful our lives and spending and actions have become, the things we've invested our heart and our time in, the way we've gone about trying to answer a question that only God really can answer.
should say the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all of his warnings. This is Second Chronicles. That was verse 10. This is verse 11. So the Lord sent the commanders of who? The Assyrian armies. The very ones who had attacked his father are back. His father had a relationship with God that saved him. What does Manasseh have? One of the idols that he set up isn't going to stand up for him. He might be able to hide behind it. Somebody's swinging a sword at him, but these idols are just rocks and wood and metal. There's nothing alive there. There's nothing real there. That's why the first commandment says you should have no other gods before me because everything else is a rock or a tree or a stick or a burning mass of, of gas out in the atmosphere. It's not real. It has no breath. It has no vitality. It can't do anything. We don't worship the stars and the moon too much, but we, we kind of... We, we, we're, our, our culture kind of gets caught up in goofy things like astrology. We all know our sign. Why? People offer to do readings of people to tell them what's going to happen. Really? In the 21st century? Really? In America, we've moved on to worshiping dead presidents a lot. We like our dead presidents. Little pictures of them in our wallets. We carry them around like pictures of our children. We value them more, actually. That non-president, Benjamin Franklin, is really impressive. Manasseh has no answers when the Assyrians show up because he's been ignoring the prophets and refusing God. And so the Bible describes what happens next. They took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose. When I was in college, I took a class called Animal Husbandry. I don't know if Deborah was in the same class. Brenda was in the class. That's why I was taking it. <laughs> Sorry, Deb. I didn't know anybody, see anybody else in that class. And one of our assignments one day, we went out into the yard. We took one of the young bull calves. He was, uh, he was a bull calf of about mm, 500 pounds calf. And we put him in this, uh, this, I don't know how you describe it if you've not seen it. It's like a big, squeeze, big squeezing machine. You know, you know those, those things that you take fries out of the, gra- out of the, out of the uh, oil with? They kind of open and they close around them and they pick it out so the, the, the oil will drop out. There's, it's like that. Only it's designed to hold an animal still. So this, this bull walks in and you pull down the gates and it squeezes him. Like french fries in the oil, I guess. So he can't move. And then because his head is sticking out and he's not really excited about what's about to happen, there were four or five of us guys who were assigned to hold his head. And yes, there were at least four of us holding that head. And then our 
professor takes a sharpened screwdriver and prepares a way for that bull to wear an earring in his nose. People do it all the time. I see people with piercings all over the place. I don't know what that's why you're squeamish about this. Stuff gets pierced that I just like, oh my goodness. That's kind of personal. They put a ring in his nose, and you know what they would do with the ring? They would tie a leather thong to that ring, and they would tie the ring to the back of a camel. For some of the kings that were captured, they would put a hook in each side of their chest under the muscle, and they would do the same thing. They would tie a strap to the back of a camel. They knew it wouldn't kill you, but they knew it would hurt. And your job was to keep up with the camel wherever it went. And I'll bet he kept up. Tell you what, that bull was really mean till you hooked a line on his nose. And then you go wherever you want. Saw that bull a couple years later. I think it was the same bull. He looked really angry when he saw us. I didn't want to get in the pen with him. I think he remembered, and now he was over a thousand pounds. And Manasseh, while he's been dragged by the nose, bound in bronze chains on the way to Babylon, not a misprint, the Assyrians were controlling that territory as well. While he was in deep distress, you think maybe? While he was in deep distress, Manasseh, can we insert the word finally? sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. Now stop for a second. This guy has led the entire nation astray. He's built gods to everything he's worshipped, everything that moves and half the stuff that doesn't. He's killed his own children. Are you letting him back in the family? Are you, not God... Are you going to say, all's forgiving, come to Thanksgiving? Oh yeah, we'll talk about the children that you ran through the fire, you ape. He humbly comes before God. And he prays. He's got a ring in his nose and a leather thong strapped to the back of a camel and he finally wakes up. Man, it takes a lot for some of us. You talk about hitting the bottom. He hit the bottom. He bounced a couple times, landed on a couple of nails. Then he finally got it. Making my nose hurt. When he prayed, when that guy pray God listened not only did he listen he was moved by his request when that guy prayed when he humbled himself before God finally 
under the most distressing circumstances, when he finally prayed, the God of the universe listened. I don't know what kind of junk you brought in with you today, but I bet none of you have a record like that. I don't know what kind of things capture you. I don't know what you've been pursuing, what straws you've been grasping after. I don't know what kind of awful, evil things run through your mind or even have been done by your hand, but none of you has a record like that. When Manasseh, the king who set up the altars to foreign gods, who rebuilt the, 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 the very things his father had torn down, who, who set up altars to, to everything in the sky, who finally got so desperate that he put an altar to Asherah, the goddess of war, in the presence of the temple itself, who ran his children, who took his babies and burned them in the fire so that he might have good luck and blessings. When that guy prayed, the God of the universe listened. And when Matthew wrote the record about Jesus, this story was in the record because of that answer. We're going to talk about the breadth of Jesus' reach across the lands of the foreigners that who, who, who now were in his bloodline. A Canaanite from Jericho. Tamar, some other version of Canaanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Philippian, whatever, whatever, whatever. We don't even know where she came from. Bathsheba, the, the wife of a Hittite, maybe. Ruth, whew. Ruth, the Moabites. The curse on her from the beginning. The breadth nationally is amazing. The breadth spiritually is bigger. In the blood that spilled from the cross is some of the blood, some of the DNA tracks of Manasseh himself. The guy who had taken Israel so far down the path is unbelievable that he wasn't just completely wiped from the place of the earth, from the face of the earth, and bidden good riddance. He's listed to demonstrate the extent of the reach of Jesus into the brokenness of man. If he demonstrates nothing else, he demonstrates that. He demonstrates how far you can fall and still be heard by God. He was suffering the consequences of his own sin. You know how that goes? You've done dumb before. When suffering the consequences of his own sin, lying flat on his back, or in this case, strapped to the back end of a camel, he cries out honestly to God and says, I have blown it. I have blown it bad. And the only answer.
answer that's really out there is you and I'm coming. Can you give me an answer? Not only does God forgive him, he puts him back on the throne. He restores him to the throne of his father. He puts him back. He put that guy back in leadership in Israel. And now, he goes back to Jerusalem, having finally realized that the Lord is God alone. He takes all of the junk that he's been building, and he tosses it over the wall of the city. He throws it away. He tears it down. And he tells the people of Israel, there's only really one God, and he's the God who created this world that we all live in. He is God alone. And Matthew says, there was Abraham, and there was Isaac, and there was Jacob, and they got 14 generations, and we arrived at David, and he was awesome a lot. Not always. And then after David, you went down through the lineage, and there was a split in Israel, but it stayed with the Davidic line, and you know he kept going, and there was Hezekiah. That was a great story, mostly. And then he had this son who became his king, and he should have been great, but he was terrible. He was worse than terrible. (laughs) But when he hit the bottom, when he hit the bottom, we found out how great our God is. When he hit the bottom, he hit it so hard, there was no up for him except to try to be lifted by Jesus. There were no options for him. He'd tried all the options. He prayed to Baal, nothing. He'd prayed to Asherah, nothing. He'd prayed to the sun and the moon and the stars, nothing. No answers from no place. He'd, went, he'd gone to witches. He'd gone to sorcerers. He'd, he, he'd tried his astrologist. He's, he'd, he'd done everything he could do, but he had no answers. And then he finally looked up and he said, I realize there's nobody but you. It's, it's, it's silent out there, except for you. And when he realized that God was God alone, he sent him back home, gave him back his throne, put him in charge of leading the people back from where he had taken them. Because that's what Jesus does. no matter where we find ourselves. On the top of a mountain or floating in the gutter with the rest of the scum. He's waiting for a call. Waiting to hear that you've figured it out and you're ready to come home. Manasseh comes back from Babylon. Catch this. This is not insignificant. Manasseh comes back from Babylon. The city whose very name represents everything in false religion. And God places him back on a throne in Jerusalem. And his child will be the Messiah. What a God we serve. Let's pray.
Father God, as we listen to a story like this, we recognize ourselves.